If you'd please stay standing for a moment to hear the word of our Lord, first from Genesis 4, and then from 2 Timothy 2, which will be our main passage. Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. And this is only to show you the same prominent theme in the Old Testament that we will see today in the New Testament. So in verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Satan thought he'd crushed the head of the church in its infancy. He only struck its heel. God's purposes and his grace continued to remain the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you'd please now turn to 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10. For some of the final writing of the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not chained, is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Let us now pray. Lord, your word is precious and it is powerful. It convicts us of our sin, it lays bare our wounds, and it binds them by the comforts of your grace in Jesus Christ. Help us to know that power today. Work through this sinful, broken, inadequate, insufficient messenger to share your powerful, pure, all-sufficient, always adequate, heart-filling, life-giving word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know about all of you, but I've been perplexed recently by a certain trend that has been very public in the church, both in our denomination and in the church at large. Brothers and sisters, we've seen a lot of pastors, missionaries, and others fail, and fail spectacularly. It cuts the heart. A lot of times, we are personally connected to these spectacular failures. And as Satan so well intends, it casts the sheep into disarray, into confusion, into doubt and a turmoil. It's easy when these things happen to explain away why various pastors and missionaries and others do such things. It's easy to say, well, it's because of this reason or that reason. But really, when we often do that, I feel like it's, we're actually just trying to tidy it up to keep it distant from us so we don't feel implicated as well. One of the things I think hurts the most about so many of these cases uh, is they are not like 
you know, that, remember the altercation between Peter and Paul. Uh, Peter, who had really forgotten for a moment the gospel of grace, uh, had been trying to please the Judaizers and had to be rebuked publicly right then and there by Paul. And in a sense, then it was over. Peter's restored and renewed, just like that. Good brotherly accountability. It's not those sorts of things. It's not those oops. It's not that momentary, horrible mistake, sin, that can be addressed. And then, in a sense, there can be restoration, repentance, renewal. Rather, so many of these cases we see are like King David. Sins that are seated in the heart and are left there to grow without accountability, without the light of day, and grow into visible, tangible, outward sin. Sin that is so unbecoming that it continues to be kept in the dark. And so, new sin is layered upon the old sin over and over into deeper webs of self-righteousness and hiddenness, where shame is kept from the light of day, where consciences are, are seared, hearts are hardened, and leaders who are called to represent God Almighty to his people in their own broken fashion, in their own self-righteousness, and those in their royal robes like King David, then fall in spectacular fashion. These are especially alarming, right? So many times you wonder, why didn't they just repent? Why didn't they just repent? Why did they let it perpetuate? And yet, who are we to point the fingers? I thought I was so humble when thinking about these cases a week or two ago. Uh, And saying to myself, and I think to one or two others, well, therefore, but the grace of God goeth I. I got a humble thing to say, right? I would be in the same shoes as these brothers, except, you know, the Lord has protected me and preserved me by his grace. It sounds humble. But the more I thought about that, I kept thinking about that passage, that parable that Jesus told of those two people who approached him on the temple steps. One who said, thank you, Lord, that I am a righteous man. I am not like these sinners over here. And the other who collapsed upon the temple steps and beat his breast and, says, and said, woe is me, a sinner. That Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, it was that latter man who came away justified. And when I say, therefore, but the grace of God, goeth I, all of a sudden, it feels a lot more like that former man. And I realize that even in that supposedly modest and humble response, there is sin and there is self-righteousness. <laughs> the fact is, so goeth I. The, sin of, the seed of every sin ever committed, I am convinced, lies within my own heart. And probably for you, too. I goeth. I already goeth. I, so yes, but by the grace of God... But it's not that I am not in their shoes. I am in their shoes. God has just preserved me. Though the sin, the seeds of all those sins are still in my own heart. If I'm honest, the reason why I want to come up with these quick and tidy explanations is because, frankly, at times I'm scared. Why not me? How not me? So many opportunities to sin and to stumble. And it's not like it's because of my superstar status, my, my own righteousness, that I haven't been caught in sin. There's so, been so many times where God, by sheer grace, has just preserved me. And even then, at times, my heart has still been left to fester, where I have not cultivated the means of grace as I should. I haven't been vigilant in prayer as I should. 
And it's scary. Because I know, in all honesty, I could go down the same road as so many of these brothers. And that scares me. I think that scares a lot of people. Uh, One of these spectacular cases recently was of a very prominent pastor in our country named Joshua Harris, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He was actually a wonderful preacher and pastor. Uh, His church was 10 minutes from my house in Maryland. Uh, I went there on occasion growing up. He had repented a lot of the legalism of his youth, including some some things you'd read in his books. Uh, Wonderfully pastoral and humble. He preached for 45 minutes to an hour, richly Christ-centered sermons. He was so quick to repent and be humble. It was beautiful. My younger brother uh, and his new wife went there the first couple years of their marriage. And we were just so richly blessed with that ministry. And I get a, not even knowing that he, this past week that he had fallen, uh, that he had announced that he was divorcing his wife of 21 years and repudiating, repudiating all belief in Jesus Christ. Uh, my brother emails me and says, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, we've only really been walking the Lord for a couple of years now. What am I supposed to do with this? If he can fall, why not me? And why not all these other pastors that I've respected my whole life? What is, what is there to protect us? How am I supposed to deal with this? That's a tough conversation to have with him. Uh, and frankly, at times, like if I'm just relying upon my own feelings, as I already said, I struggle with fear, uh, insecurity, uh, because I know the ravages of my own heart. And I realize anew that I have to turn from my own heart for truth here to that rock-solid word of God. Because my heart is a liar. My heart lies to me. Uh, it gives Satan plenty of ammo with which to lay me out. Uh, but then it not only gives him all the ammo he needs to accuse and condemn me, but then takes those accusations and condemnations to heart and begins to slowly condemn me and really, in a sense, begin that same process that could lead to those same sins that pastors and many within the church of God have, God have fallen into. So I come back to the word of God, to the means of grace. And who better go to than the Apostle Paul, who I'm sure never forgot that he was once Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Why not go to him, who is so very clearly weak and vulnerable and broken and yet preserved by God? And so that's why we go to our passage today. And the main point I want you brothers and sisters, like me, to remember from this passage is that we must be painfully aware of our sin and our weakness in order to cling to the comforts of Christ. We must be painfully aware. As soon as we start sweeping it under under the rug, as soon as we say, oh, well, that's not bad. No, I'm lusting in my heart, but it's not like I'm actually doing anything about it. Yeah, I'm a little smug in here, but I still use very modest words. Uh, I might be neglecting my wife, but it's not like I'm fighting with her. Uh, As soon as we start to rationalize, uh, that's the slippery slope. When we start to not take our sins seriously. We must be painfully aware of our sin and our weakness in order to cling to the comforts of Christ. And that's why I'm going to start here in the middle of these couple of verses. I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. One of the beautiful things about the life of Paul stretched before us by God's inspiration in Scripture is how bloody and vulnerable 
and weak and painfully exposed it is. Now, I don't often like to bring up the original language because it's usually a distraction. But it's important here in the Greek. It's for which I am suffering even to the point of being bound with chains as a criminal. He's not saying these chains, these physical chains he's bearing right now, are his suffering. And since they're the visible expression of it, but they're the tip of the iceberg. He's encompassing the whole of his life and his ministry here. And not just the suffering, but the sin as well. Of course, we all know the suffering. You know, beaten, whipped, stoned, shipwrecked. Plenty, plenty of suffering. But also the sin. Remember, before his life was covered in the blood of Jesus, his hands were covered in the blood of Stephen. What incredible guilt. In a sense, he was responsible for the first murder of a Christian. That's not something I would like to uh, set my head down to at night. Before he became a believer, he murdered a man. And then he went and started to hunt down men, women, and children to throw them in prison. He was a monster. An antichrist sort of figure. Nobody, if it was based upon our works, nobody was less deserving of God's grace, it seemed, than him. Except God heard, of course, the prayers of Stephen, in a sense. The portals of heaven closed upon Stephen's vision as he died and opened up not long after on to the road of Damascus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's the beginning of, Saul's, of Paul's story. Not a happy one. Not the sort of one that you would like to brag about if, when sharing your testimony. I mean, people would be cool if perhaps you, you, know, you did drugs for a while, you're involved in gangs, you went to jail, but now I see Jesus and everything's all right. You know, those, those sins don't necessarily seem that bad in a testimony, but as soon as you say, yeah, I murdered uh, one of you guys, that's, that's not something you want to share. And you better believe that Paul was always painfully aware of this fact. Think of his, what I'd call his false testimony in Philippians 3. If anybody had reason to, has reason to boast in the flesh, I do. You know, Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee. And as to zeal, and you almost feel his, this false testimony coming to a screeching halt here. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And then as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And you almost, you feel that nosedive, that false testimony. Guys, here's all the reasons why I had to be proud. And at that time, I would have included killing a man and hunting down men, women, and children. No wonder he calls it rubbish. You can hear the pain in those words. He called it rubbish. But rubbish here is not just, we often think a trash pile. And I'm going to be even more explicit here because I think it's important. Uh, We have diaper pails nowadays. Uh, there was no diaper pails back then. He's calling this a pile of poop. And I'm sorry I'm being crass, but I think it's important because poop is gross. Uh, it is disgusting. You don't want to see it. You definitely don't want to touch it. You don't even want to smell it. It nauseates you. It is so repugnant. He wants us to feel that visceral reaction to all those sources of pride, which now are his humiliation. His is a testimony that he doesn't take delight in for his own sake. 
His is not a celebrity testimony, and he was not a celebrity pastor. And he was frequently reminded of that. Nor should we ever do that to a, to a pastor. They are in more need of help and prayer than the people in the pews. Painfully aware of his sin. And you see this stretch out the course of his life too. Lord, take from me this thorn in the flesh. Cried out over and over, and the Lord said, nope. My grace is sufficient in your weakness. But he said, nope. You're going to be afflicted by that the rest of your life. You won't even know what it was. It's not important. Sometimes you don't need to know the nitty-gritty. You can see the pain etched out in how Paul was pleading. I do what I do not want to do. I don't do what I do want to do. Who will save me from this body of death? (coughs) Look how painfully aware he was of a sin. He tells the Corinthians, I'm the least of the apostles. He tells the Ephesians, I am the least of all the saints, by which he meant all the Christians, all Christians. And finally, toward the end of his life to Timothy, he says, and I'm the worst of all sinners, period. Painfully aware of his sin, and since he grew in his awareness of his sin over the course of his life and his ministry, and thank God he did. Because look what happens when Satan's able to get his hands upon one of these under-shepherds and take them down. And of course, that, that painful awareness produces vigilance. And one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul, by God's grace, is his transparency. All this encompassed under this suffering, even to the point of chains as a criminal. His transparency. How do we know all these things about him? Because under God's inspiration, he shared some of the most humiliating possible things about himself. He let it all, he opened the doors of that nasty heart and let in the light. For all of us to see. For all of us to see. So transparent. It's not like he was being rewarded for his his transparency. It's not like authenticity was a buzz phrase back then. People held it against him. The super apostles were able to make sport of this to divide the church, to split it, to ridicule him, to take him down in the eyes of believers, and to twist their own hearts toward heresy and immorality. It was constantly used to hit Paul. He had every reason to cover back up and say, see, I can't trust people. I can't do this. And yet he continues to share his sin, his suffering, his weakness, his vulnerability to the very end. Before the people of God. And look how it blesses people. Paul's taking you through the epistle to the Philippians right now. And Philippians 1, are the Philippians uh, at all ignorant to the fact that the Apostle Paul is in jail? In literal chains? Are they ignorant of his suffering? His suffering is on display before the watching world. And then our Philippians like, wow, obviously uh, it didn't work out for that guy. Obviously uh, his God is not great, his grace is not sufficient. They saw Paul and his weakness, his insufficiency, his humiliation, and they were strengthened in their own weakness. In the prison guard, they were pretty impressed by it too. And started looking at Jesus anew. So Paul was painfully aware of his sin and transparent about it with the people of God. And really, it was exposed before the eyes of a watching world too. Brothers and sisters, we need to be painfully aware of our sin. Painfully aware of it. Don't ever sweep it under the rug. Don't ever rationalize it, as I am often prone to do. And that's why he gives us, God saves us as a people. 
to share our wounds with one another and to remind each other that God's grace is sufficient. Uh, he knows what it is to bear wounds. He did so some 2,000 years ago, the person of the Son, and he also knows how to bind them. And that brings us to the comfort of Christ that comes of being painfully aware of our sin and our weakness and our frailty. Against this backdrop, against which Paul always places the sweet comforts of Christ, he always places it against the backdrop of our sin and our suffering and our weakness and our frailty. He then says, now, remember Christ Jesus. We can really only do that if we're honest about our sin. People who think they're doing pretty well aren't very likely to come on their knees before King Jesus in prayer, crying out, take this thorn from me. Remember Christ Jesus. And Paul, remember, he's dipping the pin in his own heart here to share these truths with Timothy, knowing that he probably does not have much longer to live. Remember Christ Jesus. Oh, come on, Paul. I mean, we've graduated that from that, right? I mean, if you've been in the, you don't even have to be in the church to know that Jesus Christ is like the foremost part of a Christian faith. That's why we're called Christians. Remember Christ Jesus? Why would you say that? Because we don't remember Christ Jesus. We just don't. Every day, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Remember Christ Jesus. There is so much more to remember than this central truth and these three words, but there is nothing less on a given day, on a given hour, for us to remember than this. Remember Christ Jesus. As we remember the pain of our sin, we remember Christ Jesus as our only hope. It is that to which Paul clung. Think about it. In the course of his own life, it was intensely personal for Paul. He calls this my gospel. Not the gospel. It's important to say at times the gospel. This is a truth that is true for everyone regardless. It stands above all preferences, all opinions, all experience. It is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ did in history. But Paul calls it my gospel. Because Jesus Christ not only died for sinners, he died for the worst of them. He died for Paul and for you and me. It was intensely personal for Paul. Remember, he had killed a man. And even after killing a man, Jesus came to save him. And the depths of the poverty of those filthy rags that he once called Righteousness. And the depths of his sin and his shame and his suffering. Imagine, in a sense, the PTSD caused by this. Being an anti-Christ figure trying to extinguish the church. Imagine how it could haunt you in the night. You can imagine, in those early days of his new walk, how Christ tenderly ministered to his heart. It's amazing, because then Paul would tell us things that very much resembled the life and the martyrdom of Stephen, this baby Christian who he killed. He said, brothers and sisters, and again, dipping the pin in his own heart, because I'm sure he was doing the same. Set your eyes on things above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. For you have died, and your lives are hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, who is your life, appears, so you will also appear with him in glory. He is so painfully dressed down in his own sin that he knows that Christ 
is all he has. And he encourages us to affix our eyes to the cross as well, to that throne of grace. Because there alone, it is there alone that we find hope. We find that stretched throughout the whole course of his life. As he clings to that hope, as he encourages others to cling to that hope, remember Christ Jesus. This is my gospel. This is your gospel. It's not a matter of abstract theology. Yes, we need to properly understand these truths. That is an important task. But don't use your perfect understanding of these truths to perfectly lay down the lines of a grandiose theology to distract you from the fact that Jesus is not only someone we study, he is someone we commune with. He's real. He is our Savior. This is my gospel. As preached in my gospel. So against the backdrop of our sin and our suffering, we see how important the central truth to remember Christ Jesus truly is. That needs to be fed into our hearts every day. So often pastors are prone to stray because they don't remember Christ Jesus. This is again why this my gospel piece is so important. We get so used to preaching week after week. And we delight in this, feeding the people of God. But it's so easy to start distancing our own hearts from what we're preaching. Uh, to substitute our own personal devotional life from our labors and sermons. It is so easy for us to confuse our calling as ministers with our calling as Christians. This is not merely the gospel I preach. This is the gospel that has saved me. And if for any reason we are ever drawing our pastor's eyes from that truth that he needs the gospel as much as us, if we are trying to turn him into another savior figure rather than a servant, then we are really steering him astray and doing harm to him, to his family. We've got to draw him every week back to the gospel too. I need your help to do that with me as well. And draw us back to the gospel. This is my gospel. Before... Paul is sharing Christ. He is knowing Christ. He counts all things rubbish. Why? For the sake of knowing Christ. It's intensely personal for him. Before he is an apostle, before he is anything else, he is a Christian washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. He gives us another. Besides that admonition to Timothy and to the rest of us, he gives us another comfort for which I am suffering even to the point of chains or bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Remember this, brothers and sisters. You should expect ministers to fall. Is it painful? Is it ugly? Yes, but which of them is Jesus? Satan is always on the prowl. Always on the prowl. And they are just as sinful as the rest of you. Except they're often told they can't be. They're often forced to hide behind these pulpits. Because if you knew what's going on in their hearts, the accusations start. The ridicule, like Paul suffered at the hands of the super apostles. This is their livelihood. And that seems like a very carnal way of thinking. But it's true. And that's one of the reasons pastors continue to hide after that first sin. Because this is going to mean the dethronia of this entire calling for them and for their families, oftentimes. Oftentimes. The word of God is not bound. Messengers by the dozens, by the thousands, will fall. They will. 
We need to expect that. It shouldn't be shocked and surprised. Well, I thought he was so holy. He is not Jesus. But we do have Jesus. And last time I checked, his uh, record is still undefeated. He doesn't fall. Jesus doesn't fall. Isn't that the point in a sense? These are all servants in the vineyard. We are all servants in the vineyard, so to speak. Jesus is the Savior. Think about how this truth carried Paul. He saw it in the martyrdom of Stephen, where God's word and spirit under King Jesus, if you remember that sermon from a year or two ago, carried Stephen to the very end. It wasn't Stephen bearing God's word. It was God's word under King Jesus bearing up Stephen. We don't bear God's word anywhere. We are borne up by it. He saw Stephen being carried by King Jesus by word and by spirit until the very end of his life. And Paul comes to do the same. And this was the memory verse for this week for those of you who looked at it. Acts 20, 24. Paul had just been told that he's going to Jerusalem to be bound. With chains as a criminal. Likely unto death. And he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And they're weeping. Because they knew that this father in the faith is about to meet his own untimely demise. Timely in the providence of God. Untimely in the eyes of man. He says, in essence, brothers, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He might as well have added, like my brother Stephen, whom I killed. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He recognized this was all about this overarching storyline of King Jesus as he builds and defends and preserves his church by word and by spirit. As he learned at the foot of Stephen, hearing his preaching, the one sermon of Stephen's that he ever attended, and obviously he wasn't a fan, I. Uh, but then let's look how that, the unbound word carries uh, Paul to the very end. Remember what we just heard from Acts 20, 24. Paul says in some of the final words he would ever write in 2 Timothy 4, to Timothy, to whom he's handing off the torch. Verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. Look at this language here. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who has left his appearing. Again, they're echoing Colossians 3, when Christ, who is our life, will appear in us with him in glory. All that Paul yearned for in the brokenness of his sin and in the utter mercy of King Jesus is now meeting its culmination. It's not going to be pretty. Most people don't die with hymns on their lips. They don't slip into that dark abyss uh, with sweet words of comfort, but they do cross the portals within the hand of King Jesus. Again, Saul would have in a sense seen that with Stephen, and he would soon see that himself, and now he's commending Timothy to that same hand of the Good Shepherd. I have finished the race. It's going to be incredibly painful for us to see these falls. 
It happens to our pastors. It happens to our missionaries. It happens to people who are revered around the country, sometimes even the world. It is damaging to the flock and painful. It casts disrepute upon the gospel before the eyes of a watching world. And yet God still preserves his church. His word still goes forth, still undefeated. And he will vindicate his name, both in this life and in the next. And remember, after David's nasty sin, God said, what you've tried to hide but has really been done before the eyes of the watching world, I'm going to now pay back to you by showing you the consequences of your sin before the eyes of a watching world, in a sense so they know that I'm still God. You brought disrepute, and I am going to regain the honor of my name before the eyes of the watching world. He will be vindicated in some ways in this life, but we especially know uh, in the life to come. Brothers and sisters, it is scary. It is painful when our messengers fall. But like parents to their children, they are but reflections of the living God. They are the moon to the sun. And sadly, often, as we often experience, as we always experience as parents, uh, and as we always experience as pastors too, the moon dims. Some points it even goes dark. A lot of us have seen that in our families. A lot of us have seen that in our churches. But the darkness of the moon uh, says nothing about the brightness of the sun. Uh, at times, the gospel ministry and gospel pastors might dim in our hearts, but the God for whom that gospel remains true, who will still abide and who will still send that truth into our hearts, abides forever. He will not fall. So I commend you, brothers and sisters, to his care. If you're looking to your own hearts, like I often do, to see whether or not things will be all right, well then, you will see the tragedy of your sin and grow to despair. Or you'll diminish your sin, see how good you actually are, and fall into smug self-righteousness. And in both cases, you will be drawn away from the grace of our God. Cast your cares upon him, we have fixed our eyes to King Jesus. He alone has the right to define our hope. He alone has the power to maintain it. Let us cast our cares upon him. And let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we endure. We endure not by an act of sheer will, but by an act of your sheer grace. We endure. Armored not in our accomplishments, but in the gifts of the Spirit, the armor of God, you who clothed us, you who work in us to will and work according to your good pleasure, we endure. Paul endured for the sake of your people that they might obtain salvation with eternal glory. He endured for the sake of your people that, in a sense, it would be on earth as it is in heaven, so that heaven and glory would touch down and illuminate the lives of your people in this broken wilderness world. He endured. It was a statement of fact, not a wish. And it is a statement of fact for us as well. We endure because though we stumble, though at times we are, at times we fall, we still fall within the hand of of King Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who has declared to us, no one will snatch you out of my hand. 
please comfort us with these truths. We cannot look to your messengers for gospel hope. We cannot look to ourselves for gospel hope. We look to Christ alone. We're painfully reminded of that, but also joyfully reminded of that. Because truly, Christ is all-sufficient. For the joy set before him, for the joy of retrieving his lost sheep, he endured that cross. And what a delight it is to be found. What a privilege it is to be found in the sheepfold. To know that we always rest within those hands. To know that as a father carries a son, so you carry us through the wilderness. Help us, Lord, now to rest our heads upon your bosom. To remember the delight of knowing Jesus, as Paul did. To hate our sin, sin, to love our Savior. And to know that against the backdrop of our sin and our suffering, our Savior gets the final word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we have considered the unchained word in messy lives, Christ also gives us a gift. He gives us a visible testimony of his grace, a sign and a seal, communicating to us the truths visually of all we have just heard, but also feeding our hearts with it. Now let me remind you here, when you approach this table, and it's not a magic table, it's not a a magic show, Uh, it is not some sort of formula through which you're automatically saved, nor is it merely just a good encouragement. We believe in the Holy Spirit, we confess with the Apostles' Creed. It is here that Christ feeds our hearts. This is how our good shepherd feeds his sheep, loves us and cares for us is by giving us dinner, by giving us the Lord's Supper. You should not approach this table if you are not a believer. And this is important. Uh, Even though the numbers are going down by the day, there's still so many people in this country who call themselves Christians because they were raised in the culture, because it's part of their tradition, or because they like some of the morals. That does not a Christian make. A Christian is one who has confessed, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. It's not only that there is a Savior, but he is my Savior. It's not only that there is a gospel, it is my gospel. And you need to own that. And you need to be going to a church, whether it's our church or another church. You need to be faithfully attending a church where you're being fed with those truths because it also evidences your desire to grow in Christ. And evidence is the fact that you are found in Christ. If you are not a believer, please do not take of these elements. These are not for you. God gives you another gift, prayer. Another means of grace. Lift up your broken and contrite heart to God even now. Ask. Ask him to tint those bleeding, festering wounds of your sin and your suffering and to bind them for Christ's sake. Remember, our Lord turned... Our God turned a deaf ear to Jesus on the cross so he wouldn't turn a deaf ear to the cries of his people. Cry out to him now. But if you are a believer, this is for you. Now, of course, if you're waging war against God right now with unrepentant sin, uh, then you're lying by taking on this supper. 
But be careful here. At times, we use that as an excuse to deny the grace which is ours. If you're struggling with sin on a week-by-week basis, and you're fighting, you're going to get knocked down at times. This is how you get back up. Uh, It's okay to struggle with sin. We should hate it, but when we're fighting, when you're not fighting anymore, when you have a seared conscience, a hardened heart like some of these pastors, that's when you stop coming. If you're still pained by your sin, if you're fighting, that means the Spirit's at work within you. Because you're still fighting. You wouldn't be fighting otherwise. The Spirit's at work within you. Partake of these elements. Christ gives these to you by His Spirit to say, get back up. Go serve me. So you can say, here am I, send me. This is for you. On the night when he was betrayed, Christ broke bread and said, this is my body, broken for you. On the night when he was betrayed, like Paul so often set his hope in Christ against the dark landscape of his sin and his suffering, Christ gives us this gift on the night when he was betrayed against the dark landscape of mankind's rebellion and betrayal of him. Christ broke bread and said, this is my body broken for you. You are not going to be broken under the weight of your sin. Christ will. Even when we cry out for justice in this world, that justice would be done, so we're often often crying out for mercy because we're crying that God would take the justice due to some of these people who are caught in heinous sins and pour it out upon Christ instead. He was broken for us. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. The blood of the new covenant. We're no longer covered with our blood guilt when we said crucify him. Let his blood be on our hands and on our children as mankind said that day. We're not covered in the blood of Stephen. We're not covered in the blood of Abel which cries out for justice against sin. We're covered in the blood of Jesus. The blood of the new covenant poured out for us. He drank the cup of wrath so we might drink the waters, the streams of mercy. All that one day we will get to drink in full and glory before the Lamb who reigns on the throne. Through this meal, Christ feeds you, but he also gives you a foretaste, a foretaste of glory. One day there will be a wedding supper of the Lamb. Right now, we need this in a sense just to keep going. We are working. We are weary and faint-hearted. This is how we, our hearts are going to fix to the throne of grace and to King Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But one day, the perfecter of our faith will indeed perfect our faith. And we will not need a meal like this to simply keep going. We will no longer hunger or thirst. We will feast with our God and be filled forevermore. If I could ask the elders to please come forward, and I will pray for this meal.